When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast and another five great British horror films. And today's guest is producer and now director, I do believe, um, Jen Handoff. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. Now, you're, a, you're, a, you're, a, you're an alumni of the Britflix podcast, so no stranger to the listeners' ears. Been here a couple times, yeah. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Now, now... This is only the third instalment of uh, Five Great British Horrors, but what's interesting for me, of, uh, from, a, from, a, from the point of view of the subject, is people might have guessed from your accent you're not British. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to give the game away, Jen. I know. It's funny because, um, because the features I've made have all been British. Mm. Uh, our features, in fact, have all been British. So it's kind of... I feel... I feel you know, a, a woman torn between two worlds. No, it's, I, I really do feel a part of the British uh, film community, i got to say, because it's, it's one of the reasons I've stayed here. I've had offers to do stuff in the States, but I really do, really do like the way the film community works over here. So it's, uh, I'm hoping they've accepted me as much as I've accepted them anyway. <laughs> I've, I've, only heard, I've only heard that they have. <laughs> I've not heard to the contrary. <laughs> Tap, tapping into that to that psyche. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see after this if they still want to keep me. Okay, okay. Right, so we're going to do five films, and just to let the listener know, the rules are simple. We we tackle each film. We're going to do it in chronological order, i.e. the, the year they were released, as, as far as IMDb tells me. Um, and we get ten minutes on each film, and when the ten minutes are up, we're going to stop talking about that film, move on to the next one. So... There's plenty of room in that 10 minutes for waffling, but no waffling after 10 minutes. Perfect. Does that sound fair? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, clock's going. And first up on the starter's gate is The Innocence from 1961. Yay! Yes, absolutely. So, you've seen the film, presumably everyone's seen the film. Everyone's seen the film, I think. Yeah, go on. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's funny because I came to it, I came to The Innocence, um earlier than watching the film, I'd say, because I, um, if you can imagine such a thing, as a, as a young person went to the opera a lot, and the opera was, was made, The Turn of the Screw, which mm. The Innocence is, is based on, um, was made into an opera long before it was made into a film. So 
when I came across the film as a slightly older consumer of media, um, it was a story that I was already really familiar with, but as I'd only ever seen it done on stage, uh, it was spectacular to see the film, sort of the incredible, just the gothic structure of the house meeting the gothic structure of the film and the 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 I think the image that really sticks with me, it's obviously something you can't do on stage, is everything out by the pond, everything out by the sort of lake in the marshlands. And every time you see, you know, I, I don't have children, but I've got nieces and nephews, and I, I know that whenever you get young children sort of wandering around deep water, it's already just an incredible source of angst. Mm. Um, and, you know, to watch these two children who... God knows where their motivations are coming from, or maybe devil knows. Um, and the nanny sitting there watching them frolic around the reeds in the water was was mildly terrifying in and of itself. But um, yeah, we should. I mean, should tell people. I suppose the, the, the basic summary of this is a young governess working with two children becomes sort of convinced that they that that, that the house and the grounds are haunted. And so it's a really simple ghost story, isn't it? In that sense. Well, it's it is. It's and it's. I think that's kind of what makes it work so brilliantly as well, is that, um, I mean, the it's, it's a little bit of that whole bad seed uh, fear of, um, of children, or, you know, or we need to talk about Kevin, that kind of thing, where these children have an, have an uncanny sense of the mature about them, and it's either they're possessed or they're uncannily mature, and the governess is mad. And, and it's, um, in a way, I guess it's a bit of gaslighting as well. Uh, you know, she sees it and nobody else sees it, uh, but the audience even questions her sanity. And I, I really love that. I love it when the audience genuinely questions the sanity of the, uh, of the protagonist. Because yeah, um, it's, really, it's, it's really gentle, isn't it, in the way that we're, we're introduced to the governess and then it's it's peppered, isn't it, before it becomes kind of, is it real or is she mad? Exactly, exactly. And it's sort of, it is it is one of those films that really beautifully leaves it open into, in in interpretation. Um, there's a couple of a couple of shots, and and where where are we taking the standpoint on spoilers here? Are we uh, are we going We're going to be t- we're talking about films that people are, cl- are claiming are famous. I think we could safe to say. Spoilers are okay. Okie okay, Um I mean, yeah, the, the, the film language, when it goes into telling you this is real um, and it starts to show the possessor's faces, as it were, um, it's still leaving it to the interpretation of is that the governess's visions? Is she seeing that? Or is it real? Um, so even, even when it is specific about what she's seeing and it shows us under no certain terms, she is seeing this man's face. Yeah. It's still leaving us to examine, you know, is this a repulsion-esque situation where this is all in her head, or is she actually seeing this? It just balances that that reality versus supernatural really nicely, I think, overall. And, uh, I think, and that's something I think that is actually a lot harder to achieve than, than people probably give the film credit for. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, it's, it is. It really, really is. And it's something that I think... A lot of modern films don't do very well at all. Is the is the is she isn't she gaslighting sort of psychosis turn? It's um, it's it's a trick that maybe early filmmakers 
almost had as a gift because the audience wasn't overly familiar with it then. So they were willing to go on that journey of, of suspended disbelief. But, um, but nowadays, if you, if, whenever you hear a filmmaker say, oh, yes, I left the ending intentionally ambiguous, it, it just always feels like a, like a sort of sophomore cop-out rather than a genuinely crafted turn, if that mm. makes sense. Um, um, but, yeah, man alive. And you know what? Even I, And I, I have to admit, um, when, when we said we'd be talking about these films, I did do a little bit of homework. So I wouldn't be caught out by my memory. And... Um, it reminded me that the turn of the screw is completely out of copyright, and uh, I would I would love to see someone take a modern stab at this story. I mean, the the gothic nature of it is unavoidable, but I I wonder if 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 it could be done in a modern setting, if we could see a modern director take the story and have it be as effective, or if this is a film that that really was of its time, so it it could never be done in that way again. Um, so is, is the, in, in that sense, then, is the innocence, I don't have thought this before, is that as true as you can, a true an adaptation as it can be? It's a very true adaptation. It's okay. a very, very true adaptation. And um, as I've said, the, the Henry James novel has been adapted a number of different ways. Um, and I think there even is a, an, another film that's called The Turn of the Screw. But yeah, it's, it's very, very, very close. Um, and... There's, there is, <laughs> what's not in the film is uh, there's a much heavier sort of allusion to pedophilia in the in the book as well as in the opera. Um, oh, really? As far as yeah, you get that you get that sort of the kiss between the governess and the boy, um, which is a big turning point in the film where where it's meant to be you know her her kissing this child goodnight in a very you know, motherly sort of way, but the child's physicality during the kiss changes it into being a much more adult moment. Um, and similarly, there's in the in the original novella, there's questions about you know the, the children's relationship and the the adults' relationships to the children previously, and, and this kind of thing. But um, but yeah, I, you know, I don't think the film suffers for the absence of it, though. I think I think when you're dealing with a uh, you know, with an hour and a half, you don't want to over-egg the, the drama, as it were. And um, and ultimately, this is the governess's story rather than the children's story in the film. So, um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely a true, and certainly in tone and mood and theme, a very true adaptation. Um, but, um, but you know what, the other thing I was interested to be reminded of in, in, in my research yeah. is that... Is that um, uh, that they were trying to make it absolutely con- in contrast to the Hammer films. And for me, I had to look up whether or not it was a Hammer film. So, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. Um, so uh, is, it, is it a Hammer film? No, it's not. It's not. And it was, I was just looking at the production notes, and it said that the, that, the, um, that the filmmakers wanted to make it to stand apart to be quite different from the Hammer films. Mm. So it's funny that, that, you know, in reflection... You know, 50 years on, as it were, um, we're not quite sure whether it was or wasn't. So it's, it's the films of that era had a much stronger um, look or theme or personality to them than perhaps they realized. Um, but yeah, and then and then and then finally, and I swear I'm not just going to be pulling quotes of interesting things that I learned when I was doing my homework. But I love all this stuff. Is oh, um, please do. 
is uh, that the I mean Daphne Oram's coming back into into vogue these days. Daphne Oram, uh, Daphne Oram, who was um, co-founder of the Radiophonic Workshop and world famous theremin player. Um, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, she she you know I think there's a lot of people trying to do documentaries about her as the first person to invent electronic music because she gets she gets cast over a lot of times. But um, but this was the first film in which she used her her sonic techniques or electronic sound engineering. Um, so which which you wouldn't think of the film as a as a technical breakthrough traditionally, but um, but yeah, it's it really was. It was it was one of the first. Well, it was the first film to use her techniques. So when you're listening to the to the soundtrack it's actually a really modern influential soundtrack above above even the story itself so and is that is that a given now is that is that sort of it's 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 no it's it's sort of a a footnote in history about about sound design or it is yeah 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 and it's it's um i don't think i don't think people actually talk about it very much but but um i went down a bit of a of a research rabbit hole mm. where it was, a, it was a little footnote mentioned on the imdb page and then I went into her biography and everything else, and yeah, it was it was right at the beginning of her her career with the with the BBC, and and very definitely, well, not so much at the beginning of her career at the BBC, but very definitely at the beginning of the Radiophonic Workshop. And is that is that my is that's that your first ten minutes up? That's well, me. Well done, right? Yeah, well, everybody should go look up Daphne Oram because she was she was a sonic badass. Indeed, uh, well indeed. Worth well worth noting. What's right, next? Right What's then, next? that was 1961. We're going to jump forward to 1967 now, and we're going to be looking at Quatermass and the Pit. Oh hooray! Oh, I love this. So, do you want to do you want to get before before? Do you want to tell us what 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 give us a synopsis as to what you think this is for you? So, Quatermass and the Pit. Um, it, it was birthed out of a of a BBC series. Like like most of these have a strong connection to television. I'm realizing, but mm. um, but uh, Quatermass had very various adventures. This sort of uh, research doctor scientist Quater Bernard Quatermass. Bernard Quater Professor Bernard Quatermass, um, and this uh, production was was a sort of um, bringing together a couple different stories, but also a remake of one of the stories in particular. Mm -hmm. And in this adventure, um, a, a, a paleontologist discovers some ancient ape men in a in a in a London tube station, and um, and shuts it down to do further further digging and research. Uh, at which point, they discover basically a, a spaceship next to them and so it begins to question the origin of man the the psycho, psych, uh, psychological energy and the effects of it and um also whether or not um a devil uh lived in hobbs end five million years ago so it's all sort of it's all sort of delightful and weird and creepy and um set in a london tube station which which i think it's I think interesting isn't it that that idea of, of, of aliens and the devil being well, it is. It's and it's overlapping each other. It is, and it's it's sort of it begins to you know some people might say it's a science fiction film really because mm -hmm. it's it's based on you know oh actually humans are evolved from aliens and this is proof of that and the alien psychological energy is what we describe as the supernatural, but um, 
but I, you know, I think no matter how you're using science to explain the supernatural, because later we'll talk about the stone tapes, which is a lot of that as well. Mm. Um, it's still supernatural, isn't it? I mean, it, it, there's some people who say, and I'm, I'm, I'm going off tangent here, but no, go, no, go for it. Um, is uh, that actually the supernatural is merely things which science has yet to explain. Um, and I, I do like that. I like the idea that, you know, the, the supernatural is merely, it's, they have scientific explanations, but we just haven't gotten to them yet. And in a way, that's, that's what Quatermass in the Pit is saying. You know, it's got this absolutely bombastic ending, which is meant to be an eruption of, of you know, historical trauma spread around London as a, as a telekinetic bomb, almost. Um, but it has a scientific explanation. You know, everything's set on fire and moving and people are, are rioting, but there's meant to be a scientific explanation for it. Even if that scientific explanation is aliens landed on Earth millions of years ago and their race trauma is now inflicted upon this this tube station in the surrounding area of London. But, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's spectacular, really. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible work of fiction, I think, ultimately. Well, I think that's... I think that's a, it, it, it's a... It's a format that I think I think horror horror can do best, where it goes, where it takes the illogical or the unreal, and then plays it and then plays it out for real and presents the logic of it. Because obviously we have to imagine then what would we do if we if we were confronted with this evidence? Yeah, no, absolutely right. And I think, um, and not that I'm going to dive back into the innocence again, but it's it's something that is definitely similar between the two films. Is that the characters, un, unlike a lot of modern stuff, when you know the the whatever whatever it is, the quote from Scream, they're running out upstairs, upstairs when they should be running out the front door. Mm. You look at, at the choices these characters make, and they're perfectly logical. Um, and then when they become faced with these moral choices about whether they take care of themselves or the or the world. Um, whether they're going to self-sacrifice, uh, it becomes, I think, a lot more realistic and a lot, lot more impactful. Um, I'd, I'd struggled to, to see the same power in a, in a recent film, really. Um, yeah, because if you think, if you think of what um, what Prometheus was trying to do, mm, mm. you know, obviously trying to trying to get beyond, trying to explore the origins of man and the influence on man, going back, you know millions of years it sort of it went it went quite far to try and get into that didn't it well and and as well and this this comes slightly back to what i was saying earlier about nothing nothing new under the sun um is that um is that when when prometheus does it in what was it 2014 15 yeah, yeah um when prometheus does it we know what the Aliens franchise, there's a lot of baggage to unpack there. There's the, you know, however many films have tried to address it in all the years. This was, this, you know, Quatermass in the Pit was quite bold um, in, its, in its exploration of these topics. And it's, it's the kind of thing that, that, um, that is actually frightening for that very reason. Um, you know, they... they they talk about initially the spaceship, the, the military are brought in because the, there's an idea that the spaceship might be an unexploded bomb. And when the film came out, in, uh, or the, the series came out in, in um, 58, 59, mm. um, you know, that was, that was only, uh, you know, a little, a decade and a half since World War II, you know? It was still a very real fear that people came across these unexploded bombs and this was a part of their life. 
So it finds this very natural way into the story and natural fears and natural paranoia and then adds the supernatural on top of them, which is quite, quite artful in a way, really. Um, and, you know, it's also the mass, the mass hysteria angle as well, I think, is something that, that plays on that fear, that plays on the, 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 the concern that society's had at the time. It's, um, well, I guess, I mean, moral, I mean, moral panic-wise, I mean, and I guess timely, what, we've got people walking on the moon at this point, haven't we? And, mm. and, and, mm. and space missions and stuff. So it would have been in the, you know, as, as much as still in the conscious, you know, you've still got fresh in the it's only 20 years after the war. So that's, that's not gone a generation yet. And mm-hmm. you've got people going to the moon. You've clearly got the Cold War going on. Um, the idea of what if is quite a neat thing. Do, do, you know, do you know anything about its evolution from being TV to film then? Do um, I don't, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't know a lot about it. I know that it, um, it developed over, over time and that the development of the film was pretty much in line with the development of the of the TV series, yeah. um, that uh, that the success of the serial was what let the the, the film be its own thing. Um, but beyond that, I'm not uh, I'm not no not really. Um, I I have a feeling it's it's probably not far off. I mean, mm-hmm. correct me if you if you know any. Jump in if you can correct me on any of this. No, but, no, no. But if I had to, um, if I had to assert it, I'd say it's, it's. I mean, it's not dissimilar to something, and and obviously dissimilar in tone, but to like the Arrested Development series being made into a movie after the fact. You know, the mm. TV series was enjoyed and well received, and and probably quite cynically, the production decided to do do something to make another bit of money out of it. Really. Well, no, I mean, I mean, look, in in the seventies, you know, on the buses was number one in the cinema in Britain, so you know. Well, exactly. Popular TV shows makes popular films, I suppose. Well, exactly, exactly, and um, and it's interesting too. I think what is most interesting is that this is the version that has survived overall. That mm. that um, that this is what people remember, as opposed to the earlier. What what do you what do you, when you see it with two thousand seventeen eyes? Does does it does it creak under that scrutiny for you? Uh, I mean, I think I think anything made, you know, X number of years ago is going to be dated. I think you've got to you've got to forgive it to some extent for that. Mm. But I think as far as narrative and characterizations and everything up, I still enjoy watching it. I I, I give it a watch about every every four or five years. Um, mm. And there's very few modern films I do that with, if I'm honest. Um, and uh, yeah, no. So I, I do. I definitely think it holds up. I think. There's things that we describe as camp, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's it's of an era, and it it's um it 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 honors the 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 tone of that era really, if nothing else. One one of the things I do love, and and some of the other films we'll talk about in a minute have this as well, are these amazing sort of uh, light effects that that really only existed in in. Things I've watched on VHS from this era. Right. Um, I'm, I was born in '83, so I, I wasn't able to watch any of this when it first came out. So I've, I've watched it all retrospectively in some way or another, and um, and I love it. It's these sort of neon 
overlaid. Um, there we are. We'll, we'll end on that. These neon overlaid visual effects, which, <laughs> which, which actually really remind me of the '80s in a lot of ways, but are quite, you know, interesting and spooky and eerie. But yes, we'll 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 end it on that. Okay. Um, on Quatermass in the Pit being uh, being on a VHS when I watched it. There we go. <laughs> so now we're going to jump four years to Blood on Slayton's Claw, mm. which, mm-hmm. which, weirdly, when I think about the film we've just spoken about, its, its starting point is about unearthing something and it releasing something having been unearthed, which I'd never thought about the similarities until I wrote them down next to each other. Yeah, yeah. So, so, and it's obviously it comes from a you know obviously so Blood on Satan's Claw set set in the historical before times of England. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, so yeah. So when was it? Was it was it eighteenth century? I think it was eighteenth century. Seventeenth century. Seventeenth century. So obviously they're not in a in an underground tube in London. No. But um, but yeah, the idea of stumbling across a foreign object that people can't explain. Yeah, at the at the at the heart of it, it's got a lot a lot of similarities there. But in this case, it's supernatural from the very beginning. Mm. Um, but in a way, there was very little science in that era, and I suppose that actually, you know, religion was in a way the science of the time. So, if I if I may say so, I'm sure I'm going to get some letters about that. <laughs> but, um, um, but in that way, you know, they, they go look for someone to cure the village. You would go look for a doctor or a scientist nowadays, but they go look for someone, for a religious leader, to, to exercise the, the demons, as it were. So um, it's, it's quite nice that, you know, like the, the um, in, it, we're talking about the questions before, it's like, first we bring the military in because it could be a bomb. And it's like, what is this thing? What is this evil? Let's go and speak to the religious leader. to see Exactly. That they're always they're always looking for guidance from some authority who who pretty much always lets them down by the by the end. Yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, and you know what? My my two the two images with blood on Satan's claw that I always always remember, are are one um, the opening sequence where they find. And I love too. It's a literal. It's literally blood on Satan's call. There's nothing. Mm. There's nothing metaphorical about this. They're they're tilling a field, and up comes this sort of monkey paw sort of relic charm thing. Oh, what must this be? Let's go take it and look at it, and mm. then and then all hell breaks loose. So, but yeah, the original the original. I mean, the very opening where they're tilling the field and they discover it. But then the other thing that really sticks in my mind is the the sequences at the end with all the all the young girls and the flower wreaths and the the sort of um charcoaled in eyebrows and the the long flowing dresses it's um it's it's just absolutely stunning really and and i mean in a way i think those images could be in a film today i think it would not be surprising to see see that same costume design, that same styling in a film today. It, it's um, yeah, really, really timeless. Really, um, you know the images I'm talking about. Yeah, right? yeah, no, and I think I think well, that's, I think because because obviously this sits within a kind of tri- a, a, not a trilogy as such, but a triumphant of films. You've got you've got. Um, Witch Witch Man Jan- General. Blood and Satan's Claw and Wicker Man. Wicker Man, yeah, and. Probably Blood on Satan's Claw 
Um, with it being 17th century as opposed to Wicker Man, which is kind of contemporary with the pagan things in it, uh, it is it's still channeling late 60s counterculture. You know, what, what you're seeing in, I think, through a story set in 17th century England is still the classic tale of adults being scared of the next generation taking over. Yeah, now, if the next generation become demonic and possessed... And it's also, you know, the idea of of pubescent women being terrifying as well. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, and it's it's you know their sexual power, and there is there is a lot of that as well. I think in in Blood on Satan's Claw, like the fear of the sexuality of of the teenage women. Um, but um, but yeah, it's just it's something. I think I think the seventeenth century can exaggerate the fear of what was probably being felt then. Because obviously, I mean, 1971, you've got, you've got like the, the kind of big um, sort of moment for where feminism becomes um, very, very politicised mm. in, in the public sphere as well. Well, so. that, and that could well be, that could well be what they're, they're channeling with, um, with those characters as well. And it's, it's, um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember the, is it, I think the lead character's name is even Angel, the girl, the girl who, who is the heart of all the issues. Um, I'm just double checking this now. Yeah, I think her name is Angel as well. So the idea of this angel being corrupted by the devil, and it's coincidentally at the same time she's going to have her period and start having sex with people, and it's all this sort of. But it's you know it is also the classical you know, classical metaphor, well, real-life metaphor of the of the witch hunts, you know, mm. these, the, the images of these teenage women all being declared witches because nobody knew what the hell was going on with them. <laughs> um, but, um, oh, yeah, and it's, it's, um, it's such an impactful film, I think, uh, Blood on Satan's Claw, that, that I think a lot of modern filmmakers don't even realize when they're referencing it. Like you said with the, with the Wicker Man and everything else, it's... Um, it's kind of, I mean, would you say it's left behind the Witchfinder? I mean, Wicker Man, obviously, at the forefront for people. Mm. But do you think more people are familiar with Blood on Satan's Claw or Witchfinder's General? Uh, I'd, I'd say, I mean, what, what, do I, what evidence do I have? Um, <laughs> Off the top of your head, with all the surveys you've done. I, I, think, c- I think Witchfinder General gets, gets the kind of director's vote mm. because, because of who directed it and obviously the untimely. Untimely death and everything, um, but then Blood on Satan's Claw. I mean, let's be honest. Folk horror was kind of forgotten. Full stop. I'm not. I'm not quite sure where it got rebirthed. I mean, there's now. You know, there's the the. the, the um, it wasn't always such a popular phenomenon. You know, I grew up in the eighties, and they weren't. There was no big conversations about them. Well, it's it's funny, and it's it's you know, in retrospect, they have become this little pocket of of cult fascination and, and as you say there's really only three films that that fall into that subgenre mm. and yet we really want to talk about it as a subgenre and it's it's i think it's brilliant though and and i'll be honest it's what i think of as as british horror films these mm. these location specific you know they couldn't be set in any other country they couldn't be set in any other place because of the tone and the vibe and the sensibility and it in a way Oh, see, now I'm going to go off on a real one. In, in, in a way, um, 
the British history, British British folklore history and fairy tales and this kind of thing are almost almost really suited to it. And you look at modern films like The Witch, and The Witch is a real reinvention of that tone, that vibe, that subgenre. Um, where it's it couldn't be set anywhere else. It's a very British character, it's a very British location, historically as well as culturally. And and that that paranoia couldn't have really come from anywhere else. But um, it's funny because you think about other cultures with the with a big fairy tale history, like Germany, well Germany in particular, I guess, and they don't have the same kind of historical horror films like like Britain does. Um, and who knows why that is? I couldn't really say. But um, and and again, so maybe something. I'll, I'll, I'll hazard a guess. Go for uh, it. It's because it's it's. I think the interesting thing is. Certainly, Brothers Saints, Clown, which found a general are two, I guess, two depictions looking back on our history with a sense of shame. We don't Britain, Britain, and this is a very general thing. Britain doesn't generally look back on its sort of colonial past with any great shame. Certainly, mm. movies don't seem to do it that 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 well. Certainly, horrors not not looked at it. Whereas here we are looking at something which is abominable, really, what went on. With the witch, witch, witch hunts and stuff. Um, thankfully, all those zealots, they got on a ship and went to America, didn't they? All those religious people. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of... It's, it's, we, we took them off your hands. You sent all your criminals to Australia and all your religious idiots to, sorry, <laughs> zealots to America. Um, but, uh, but I think that's as close as I can come to it because I think, I think, and I think the reason it got revisited is because they're, that it, what you say is, is they are atypically British because they couldn't be anywhere else. And I think when people start to look around for what is authentically British, because, uh, you know, whether we like it or not, there is a dominance in, in, in film media now from, from America. Mm. So I think it's hard to decide, you know, and, and your product's always judged against a kind of bigger American model. And I think that, that when people look back, they go, oh, yeah, okay, that, this, this wasn't, this hasn't been replicated anywhere else. I think. Well, exactly, and it's... um. You know, even even thinking about it, like God, you know, look at look at the Wicker Man remake, <laughs> which yeah, yeah, which yeah. When Ta- you know, when remade in the states, is just absolutely ridiculous. And time's up, Jim. Oh no! Well, on that point, everyone can agree with me, but they should. Um... <laughs> I don't think it's a debate anyone needs to have. No. Exactly. <laughs> um, and you know what? The only thing I didn't say is that uh, anyone anyone who's not seen. Blood on Satan's Claw should at least go look at the still images. Well, they should watch the film regardless. But damn, if she doesn't look like Cara Delevingne in those final sequences, like well, it, Linda Hayden. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. it's a big drawn-on eyebrows. Yeah, 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 yeah. It just absolutely the spit of Cara Delevingne. Um, but yes, we'll leave it. We'll leave it at that. Okay, right then. We're going to jump just twelve months on, and we're going to delve into uh, a TV movie, The Stone Tape. Oh yes. Uh, which, which, just for no for no apparent reason that I noticed it after writing it down was written by Nigel Neal, who also wrote quite a mass in the pit. Yes, which is outstanding, and and it's um, it's I you know again I went down this research rabbit hole, but apparently the the similarities between the two are no no coincidence that this was sort of his style of writing these science fiction horrors, mm. which um, started off with, you know, people in very banal jobs trying to convince other people of something and then everything falling apart towards the end. Mm. Um, but um, but I got it, you know, the stone tape, 
this is another one that has these fantastic VHS effects, is all I'm going to call them, of this sort of, you know, backlighting digital craziness. Um, absolutely. Now, can, can I ask you, before you go into detail, given you said you, you, you were born in 83. Yes. And, 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 and you're American. Yes. How, how, <laughs> and, and how no, did I come to these films? <laughs> yeah, no, how, I mean, especially this one, because obviously it's a TV movie. How, how does, how, how, how did you come across this one? What was... What was the, the journey there? Well, I, I've had a sort of three-pronged benefit of, mm. um, of historical British film exposure. Mm. Um, the first being my father and PBS or BBC America, the public broadcasting station in the States, which okay. became or, or got usurped by BBC America, which, which did play these films. Uh, that's, that's where I saw, for instance, The Innocents um, okay. was on that channel. Um, uh, so there, there was exposure to several things through there. There was I used to work at Kim's Video Store in New York City uh, before they closed. When when I was at university, I um I worked as a as a as a video rental monkey, uh, and I got to see loads of things. And that's where I first came across the Stone Tape. Was we had this section of um of things that had been dubiously recorded off televisions. <laughs> um, and rent it out to the paying public. Um, Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, they had... Oh, I loved working there. They had some incredible, incredible uh, limited items. Honestly, we should, do, we should do another chat about that because when they closed through nefarious situations, um, when they got closed down, um, the collection was sold and is now sitting supposedly in a warehouse in Italy where it's meant to be in a museum, but apparently it's just being hoarded. So there's a whole other story to the films they had. Okay, there. this incredible private collection, basically, private public. Um, Brilliant. So let's get yeah, to so, stone tapes then. So that's where I got from there. And then yeah. um, coming over here and all you guys sharing amazing films with me was the third one. But, yeah, so that's where I came across stone tapes originally. Um, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> you know, so like we established, so we've got Nigel Neal on, on, on the writing side of this, and, and clearly that, that kind of sci-fi horror crossover is his bag. Well, and it's another one from the Radiophonic Workshop as well. Of course um, it is, yeah. So there's a nice tie-in with the with the Innocence there, um, as far as soundtrack goes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it's, this is, this is a crazy film. I gotta say, like, this is, this is one of those films that is a wholly unique idea. And, and the heart of it is the idea that um, certain kinds of stone can record psychic vibrations and then play them back, so to speak. Um, and the thing I love about this film and that concept is that there are people out there who have heard of that idea, who have heard of this notion of recording onto, um, onto physical environments, this idea of residual haunting. Mm. Um, it's a fairly solid ghost theory, isn't it? Well, exactly, but it's it's actually most of it. Most of it came from this, and it's actually called the Stone Tape Theory. By <laughs> so most of it Brilliant. is actually sci-fi becomes real. entrenched in the film. Um, love it. So I love that. I love that, and we we talk about it. We reference it a little bit in the Borderlands because it it did become this sort of scientific theory, which was really evolved from this film, from this TV movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely, absolutely fascinating, and it's the perfect kind of sci-fi, where it gives you an explanation that is just believable enough that you don't doubt it, 
but not so accurate that it can never be proved or disproved by current science as well. So it's, it's quite brilliant, I think, really, at the end of the day. And, um, and I'll be honest, genuinely scary for me. And, and a lot of people might watch it and, and think it's hokey, so it might be from the fact that I'm remembering my first watch is what makes it so scary for me. But I still, I, I rewatched it again a couple of years ago, and it's still genuinely terrifying, I think. I think, um, maybe not terrifying, unnerving. Genuinely unnerving, particularly if you watch it by yourself. Um, unnerving is a, good, is a good thing, is a more sustainable thing, I think, for... Well, exactly, for and it... it Unnerving and uncanny, I suppose. Um, a shame, a shame for Jill, isn't it? Really, played by Jane Asher, as as no one will listen to her concerns. Well, exactly. No, no matter what she says, she really is the canary in the cage. <laughs> and it is, it is, and it's another one of these sort of gaslit um, protagonists who are desperately trying to to tell everyone that the danger is coming, and everyone is willfully ignoring them, mm. <laughs> um, which is a bit of a theme between these projects, um, these films. Um, but yeah, man, and the, the, the narrative is so beautifully crafted as well. It's simple, but it plays into itself brilliantly. Um, and it's also, I love the idea that the whole, the whole film takes place around an old building being renovated Mm. and what happens when you renovate this old building. So in that way as well, I guess it's, it is similar to, um, to Quatermass, I guess, I guess Nigel Neal. He loves he loves renovating a space and discovering something historically spiritually wrong with it. But well, but also just just this, just that idea of interfering in the continuum, isn't it? You know, you know mm-hmm. referencing Blood and Saints Claw as well. It's like if you you can accidentally do something and and ignore the uh, ignore the reaction at your, at your peril, so to speak. Well, it's, it's very true. I mean, between between Blood on Satan's Claw, Quater Must the Pit, and the Stone Tape. If they all just bloodied left well enough alone, <laughs> everything would have been fine, which is which I do love that in a film where it's the character's choices to to seek the truth. Now which... now I'm gonna say in Stone Tape, we're still living in a very much an analogue world. Mm-hmm. But but we do have the kind of heroic is probably the wrong word, but 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 it's the one I can... <clears throat> I guess it's more naive belief that technology will out because we are the humans and we've, we're making this technology to to solve the unknown. It's like a belligerence, isn't it? Mm. That that the more you believe that you're going to understand it because you have science, whereas obviously science only understands so much. The rest of it is a mystery, and if mystery is all you're getting back, it's you're not going to solve nothing. Exactly. Yeah, no, I like that. So it's in a way, it's a forever circular uh, argument. And you know what? As well, if you look at you know Stone Tape and Quatermass, both it's it's scientists who are driving these things forward. It's the questioning of science. Mm. Um, and and I mean, in a in a terrible way, the the moral is almost leave bloody well enough alone. You you. <laughs> You truth-seeking scientists, because you're only going to muck things up because you don't understand what's going on. Um, which again comes back to what I was saying before about you know the supernatural is merely science we haven't gotten to yet. Um, but Su- uh, supernatural is beginning to sound a lot like that pipe behind the wall that you stick a nail through in it, and then there's. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Exactly. I should never have hung that bloody picture. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but it is. Yeah. It's. It's. Um, and it's, you know what, though? It, it, I keep getting asked by people about what's the boundary between science fiction and horror. And, and I just really think it's, it's a very thin line at the end of the day. Mm. 
that um, I used to say that that horror was something that that had an element of the unexplained to it, and science fiction is something that is explained by science. But but I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure that applies anymore. It seems like such a blurred line. Yeah, because uh, I mean, when when you think about science fiction, um, I'd, I'd say that Coherence, for example, is is a horror film, but its its horror is grounded in science fiction. Exactly, exactly. So, so is there, you know, is, then do the two genres co-mingle? Or is it, or is it a sub-genre? Or is it, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to go down the genre bolt, uh, rabbit hole, because I, I will say I think these days genres, a label we put on things and not necessarily a definition, if that makes I was going to say, I mean, I, I mean, to me, I think sometimes genre is just place now. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's sort of... Uh, a limited, a limited placeholder rather than a, a definitive definition. Um, sure. But, um, but yeah, going going back to the stone tapes though, talk about a great use of a single location as well. Hmm. Um, it's it's got this phenomenal set. Oh no! And time is up. Time is well, up. Well, everyone knows how I love a single location film, so I'll leave it at that. But um, but yeah, definitely definitely worth people check uh, digging out and checking out. Um, I'm not even sure where you can get it these days. Uh, I wonder if it's on Amazon. Who knows? Um, Who knows? We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll work that out. Exactly. So then, uh, finally, we're going we're gonna to jump uh, to the nowhere near present day year of 1981. Mm-hmm. And we're going to fudge, fudge the uh, conditions for uh, Five Great British Horrors, because it still is. Um, it's the, uh, the TV series Day of the Triffids. Oh, yes. Adore this. Absolutely adore this. This terrified me as a kid. Um, it's still, it's still, you know what? Uh, that's, that's the one that I rewatched, uh, oh. in advance of our chat, um, oh. was, was Day of the Triffids because I, I, it'd been, it'd been a long time since I'd rewatched it front to front. And I, and I have seen the, the not very good film and then the American attempt at a remake of the TV series as well recently. So I wanted to make sure that I had the British one in my head. Hmm. Um, but, uh, Oh my God! I I have wanted a triffid in my garden since I was about twenty years old. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and with my husband being a, a sculptor and effects artist, I think my dream might finally come true. But um, but yeah, man. So so day of the triffids for anyone who who doesn't know is um is a is another sort of I guess another sci-fi horror without a shadow of a doubt. I think meteors um, coming down from the sky and blinding everyone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is the thing, and it's um uh yeah. So so the gist is is that um, Day of the Triffids, also based on a novel, um, by John Wyndham, by by Mr. John Wyndham, exactly. Um, uh, is is um is based about so so these Triffid plants have appeared from God knows where. Um, that's up to the audience to decide. Uh, and um. And coincidentally, uh, once the triffids have matured and are spread across the world that we're using, we're using, I love this, we're using their oil, the oil of the triffids for various manufacturing purposes. So it's the industrialization of the triffids is actually man's downfall, which I love. (laughs) Um, uh, And then coincidentally, um, this meteor shower falls across the world and anyone who's able to watch the meteor shower, which is pretty much everybody, 
um, goes blind. And the problem is, is that triffids are easily managed or, or relatively easily managed by a sighted person, but they have this violent sting. Um, they can walk, by the way, triffids, which is the best thing. They're about six feet tall and they walk around and they're basically giant pitcher plants with these stinging um, sort of whips that come out of their mouths. And um, now that everyone's blind, the triffids are running amok and cannibalizing everyone. And as I explain what a triffid is now, I see how utterly ridiculous it is. <laughs> and yet completely viable in uh, in the show. It's it's absolutely you're completely willing to go with it. And um and yeah, and it's absolutely absurd. But I love I love the one two punch of everybody accepts these plants have, have populated the world. And then equally everyone accepts that um, that a meteor shower has caused everyone to go blind. Uh, thereby you know, crippling their defenses in the face of these of these creatures. Also, we're saying obviously our hero is someone who hasn't gone blind, who then meets a group of of other people who haven't gone blind, and has to decide whether they're going to take care of the blind, who would inevitably die without them, or go off into the countryside and recreate civilization with the sighted. Um, there's a lot to unpack in this, I realise now. <laughs> yeah, 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 because I mean, I, I must admit, I've not seen it since I was a kid. Oh man, I, I absolutely recommend a rewatch. It's um and, and again we're back to my we're back to my very favorite VHS effects, digital effect type things where um the the and in this sense it's an opening credit sequence of um of the uh of the meteor shower, which is just taking place on people's faces. Hmm. Um so yeah, it's just it's it's absolutely phenomenal really. Um the thing the thing I was really struck by in the rewatch is that um, how much it reminded me of The Walking Dead, actually, is that um, while you have the Triffids, who are akin to the zombies, Mm. um, as this sort of constant threat that must be avoided, really it becomes humans and human natures who are are the real monster, Stuart. No, surely (laughs) not. You don't say. You don't say. Um, And it was was interesting that, that it was able to do that so quickly while still have it be a film about the Triffids. Um, I hadn't really remembered the violence of, of the humans being so um, so abject, really, so much in the foreground. Okay, so so a lot of what the story unpacks is that the infight in between humans as to what, what's the right way forward in light of this horrendous moment in the planet Earth. Exactly. That, that becomes actually more dangerous than the Triffids themselves. I mean, in many ways, the Triffids are sort of the dialects, dialects of, the, um, of the science fiction plant, killer plant movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> they you know, can't that, open doors. They can't go upstairs. They're that, sort of, you know. That's kind of how I remember it in a kind exactly, of And you, you can get away from it in, in much the same way that, that zombies are. You know, I never understand why people don't just go live in, in flats without first floor or ground floor doors. But... Um, <laughs> It's you know it's, it's what they can't they can't climb walls, um, but uh, but yeah it's it really ends up being the people who are the most violent and the most most terrifying to get around rather than the animals themselves. Given you've just recently watched them, what was what was a standout scene or sequence for you? Well, you know what it was um, it was really really terrifying to see a scene in which. Uh, a blind man, one of the one of the people who've been stricken blind, um, 
approaches a, a sighted woman under the guise of asking for assistance. And then he, he just kidnaps her and he holds her at knife point and forces her around uh, to do all of his bidding. And, and our hero comes upon them a couple scenes later with this blind guy just beating the crap out of the sighted woman. <laughs> no just, way! Yeah, it just struck me as this, it's, you know, he was trying to make her into a slave sort of a thing. And that struck me as really shocking. But then, but then a few moments uh, before that, we get this scene of a, of a group of, of football hooligans. Um, and obviously, you know, at the time, football hooliganism was in the foreground of culture. Mm. Um, uh, this group of football hooligans walking around with one-sided hooligan and the rest of them blind. And uh, they get to a shop and the sighted hooligan says, what do you want, boys? It's all free these days. And, and the first thing out of their mouths is, I want a woman. And so oh. he goes into the street, grabs a blind woman, and throws her to the hooligans. And I just, wow. it, I think in that sense, that really struck me in how dated it was to some sense. But also, it very much reminded me of the bits from um, 28 Days Later, where when they get into the um, into the fortress, as it were, yeah. the women sort of get thrown to the men, um, and the men are there sort of living it up in the post-apocalyptic world. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think, I think in retrospect, that was the thing that, that shocked me in a rewatch. Um, and, and the other thing that shocked me in the rewatch was how incredibly brilliant the writing is in the opening. Um, the drip feeds of the information, um, and how, like, the, the, it is expositional, but it's so beautifully done that, um, for instance, you, you know, you've got your character, who's your protagonist, who's in the hospital with bandages around his eyes, um, which is why he doesn't go blind. Mm. And he's saying, oh, it must be midnight on Wednesday because I don't hear any traffic noise. And when I went to bed, it was Tuesday afternoon. So it must still be midnight Wednesday because that's when the traffic, light, the traffic noises die down. And then they pan over to the window, and you see it's it's full light outside. Nice. Uh, so they don't tell you anything. They just drip feeds that something's not quite right. And it was beautifully done. It was just absolutely brilliant writing, absolutely brilliant, subtle, subtexted writing. Um, so it's six, it's six episodes in total. Yeah. Is that yeah. six hours? No, 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 no. It's it's um it's pretty quick actually. I think it's I think it's about two hours twenty in the end. Okay. Um, so in, in that in that timeline, then how? How soon, I mean, how do they, I can't remember now at all, how do they establish the sort of, the idea of the the benign Triffid and then the her, the, the meteor shower obviously changing everything? Is, so is, so the meteor shower is actually in the opening credits, which is, okay, okay. but it's, it's really subtle. Again, it's just this digital effect of people staring at some lights um, and they never say, oh, look at that meteor, but, okay. but it's, it's implied. And then, um, and then again, it could be really hackneyed storytelling, but in this sense, it really works. As the as the protagonist is laying in bed with his eyes bandaged, he's he's recording notes into a dictaphone to send to one of his colleagues, and he works in one of the Triffid farms. So he's telling his his colleague says, "I want a report of the accident you've been in, which is actually at the hands of a Triffid." Right. And so the guy gives him the background of what happened and up to his own accident. So it's. It, again, it could be hackneyed, but I think it really works. And there you have it. Time's um, up. So, people, well... Well, people have got to watch it. That's that's all I've said. No, no, I, I definitely will. It. It's, it's, it. it. it's the one I've not seen. 
Um, for, since I was a kid, so it's like I've not seen it. I mean, yeah. as a 10-year-old, as a, as a it bloody terrified me. So It's absolutely brilliant. I think it's... Um, it's it's worth watching, and again, I think I think that version is the best executed version as well. Um, there was there was I think uh, a later a later adaptation as well, but I wouldn't I wouldn't really bother with that one. Um, even though even though it's got Eddie Azard and Vanessa Redgrave in it, it's uh, it's not as good. <laughs> that seems that seems a bit yeah. Was, yeah, it's a bit not appealing anymore. Yeah. Uh, so let's have a look then through these. We've got we've got um, we've got The Innocent sixty one. We've got Quite a Master Pit sixty seven. Blood and Saints Floor seventy one. Stone Tape seventy two. And Day of the Triffids eighty one. Now, what's interesting for me, having done this has been the third one so far. You're the first. To uh, to not reach the nineties, never mind the noughties. Oh, um, you're the first to. I think you're the first to get me into the sixties. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were the first. Yours is the first adventure into the sixties. So British are in the sixties. So thank you for that. Oh my god, I love that era as well. There's so much going on in the sixties of British British hearts. Uh, oh. Well, we'll we'll have to we'll have to revisit that at the pub another day. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> now it's well, it'd be, it'd be a shame while we've got you on not to talk about any anything you've got coming up if you want or anything well, that's, that's got on release. As you, um, as you mentioned, I'm I'm putting my my my. Well, I was going to say putting my toe in the water, but you can't do anything in half measures. I'm jumping into the freezing pond of directing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm working on a on a documentary. I'm really really excited about, which is uh, titled The Spider Men. Okay. And it it's a look into the world of uh, the annual beauty pageant for tarantulas, basically um, the crufts of the tarantula world, if you will. Jeez, um, and it's um it's fascinating really because the the like coming from a horror background and also from a background where I myself have a have a natural fear of spiders having grown up in a part of the world where where they do frequently kill people yeah, yeah. um uh for the 900 species of tarantulas none of them none of them are deadly to humans so they get a really bad rap actually um and that's it's, bit, it's not going to make me any less scared of them. No, no well, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? And so a, a bit of the documentary is exploring these creatures that are so beloved by their owners and so, you know, seen as so repulsive by a number of people and um, trying to figure out what the human side of that is, really. Uh, but it's been great. It's, um, it's uh, yeah, I've, I've met some charming spiders and some even more charming people. So we'll see, we'll see how that develops. How, it's, far, um, how far down the road are you with that? Um, we're still uh, we're still shooting. We'll be shooting until next May, really. Uh, okay. The the pageant, I say pageant. The competition occurs uh, about the third week in May. So we're we're um, rather than completing with this year, we'll complete with next year. But yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun getting to know these guys and and gals really, and um, and uh, and the creatures they love, as it were. Um, it, it, I'll tell you what it adds. It adds new meaning to the to the phrase "only mother, a face only mothers could love." So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I can. I, will, I mean, you're talking to someone that's that's scared of most animals. To be honest with you, so phobias is 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 part of me. And, uh, <laughs> spider, sp- big spiders certainly fall into the category. And they have they have visible fangs as well, which not many not many animals have. Mm. Um, so I think I think you know 
they to go from something that is so frightening, frightening visually and yet so harmless is actually quite interesting and delicate as well. They're quite delicate creatures at the end of the day. Um, but um, but yeah, so working on that, I've got um, I've got two features I'm producing at the moment, both based on books. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you the titles because then, then then I'd be letting the cat out of the bag. But hopefully, I can announce those soon. Yes. Um, and then um, yeah, just just carrying on, banging the drum as usual. I'm sure I'm sure some ridiculous no budget independent project will will jump up that I absolutely cannot pass up. But. Um, but yeah, just just carrying on, and obviously the the chamber has just come out, so people ought to check that out on um, on iTunes and, and Amazon. Mm-hmm. And then um, Prevenge is yeah, still yeah. Uh, still rolling forward, so people should still definitely definitely give that a watch. Which really falls, I think, into the tone of of British horror that we were talking about. Prevenge. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, it. totally. Um, and then um, and then also, wouldn't you know it, the Borderlands is on BBC iPlayer. So so you know. Check it out at your local computer. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. But, yeah, there you go. Lots going on. Um, well, look, but, thank you very much for uh, coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, I, I look forward to hearing what everybody else brings up. This is a great, this is a great format. It's exciting, exciting that you're doing it. Thank you. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Vacation starts with VA. Whether you're feeling beachy, mountainy, or every E in between. You'll find all that you love all in one trip to Virginia. Start yours at virginia.org. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.